0: you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, we continue working our way through the book of Acts this morning. And I want to put Acts 8 into some context. And if you know the story of the Bible, if you know the story of Scripture, or indeed the story of human history, then you already know that we serve a God who is on a mission. You see, God created all things Out of nothing, by the power of his word, in the space of six days, and he created everything good. Everything was perfect. But then there was a fall, and things became broken and messed up. And the fall happened because of our rebellion against God. And so bad things entered the world. Death, evil, lying, shame, deception, fear, blame, pain, all entered the world as a result of our rebellion against God. But as I said, our God is on a mission, and he is on a a mission to redeem what is broken. In fact, our God has promised that he will make all things new, and his redeeming work has been done by Jesus in his life, death, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, and now his reign in heaven at the right hand of God. And his mission continues now through followers of Jesus, the church. That's us, right? This is our part in the story. This is where we come into the story. Folks ask the question, what is the mission of the church? Everybody has, all organizations have a mission statement now, and that's good. We ought to be clear about why we exist. But when it comes time to talk about the mission of the church or to ask what is God's mission for the church, it might be a little clearer to say not that God has a mission for his church, but that God has a church for his mission. Because he began a mission and then created a group of people to carry it out. That's why we exist is for the mission of God. God. And here in Acts 8, we learn a lot about God's mission because it enters a new stage here in Acts chapter 8. If you'll recall back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus has said to his followers, you will be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so far in Acts 1 through 7, they've been his witnesses in Jerusalem. And that's the only place they've been. But here in Acts 8, we're going to see the word begin to spread and people be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria. And by the end of Acts chapter 8 next week, when Philip shares with the Ethiopian to the ends of the earth. So Acts chapter 8 is a transition. It is an expansion of the mission of God. We get to see what God's mission looks like played out in the lives of people outside of Jerusalem, outside of where the temple is. And so it has great importance and relevance for us. This morning, I just want to ask four questions about the mission of God. First, we're going to ask what is the context of carrying out God's mission? Secondly, who is called to carry out God's mission? Third, what did they do to carry out God's mission? What does the mission of God look like as it moves outside of Jerusalem? And finally, what is the, the power for carrying out God's mission? Let's answer those four questions as we come here to Acts chapter 8. First, what is the context of carrying out the mission? The context, if you were with us last week in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, a man full of grace and full of the Holy Spirit, is just taken out and stoned. He's killed. They just throw rocks at him until he dies. One of the leaders of the church, that's where we pick up As we come to Acts chapter 8, we look at the context here, verses 1 through 3. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Let me pray for us as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, please use your word in our lives. Help us to see what it looks like for your mission to go beyond the bounds of Jerusalem. And I pray that you would help us to see that so that we could see more clearly what your mission might look like here in the shoals. Please help us to see that empower us for what you have us to do work in our hearts to accomplish your purposes for it's in jesus name that we pray amen so what's the context of this expansion of god's mission well it's lost stephen just got killed And then persecution, right? Verse 1 right there says that Saul's, they're giving approval, and this great persecution broke out against the church. And verse 3 says that he's going, trying to destroy the church, going from house to house, dragging off men and women and putting them in prison. Usually they just got the men and rounded them up, but Saul is so zealous to stamp this out that he's putting even women in prison. So he's determined to stop the spread of the gospel. And as a result, we read that the people, the followers of Jesus are scattered, that they leave their homes, that they leave their jobs for for their own safety and for their own lives. And they relocate their families other places. They actually scatter to avoid the persecution. But notice, where did they go and what did they do? Do you see that? Where did they go? It tells us in verse 1, right? The great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, right? Jesus said, you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem. Now Judea and Samaria, right? The mission is going forward. In this context of loss and persecution, Jesus is accomplishing his purposes. And what did they do as they went? Look at verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Oh my goodness, they're being Jesus's witnesses in Judea and in Samaria. So the mission of God, the, the what Jesus gave them to do is being carried out. Now let's just stop right there and make some application, okay? We sang about it already this morning. Did you hear d- did your heart hear what your mouth was singing? Because we've already sung that what Others mean for evil, God uses for good. God accomplishes his purposes. He will not be stopped. He will not be thwarted. We see that here where the apostles have been imprisoned and beaten and threatened. Stephen's been taken out and killed. There's this great persecution house to house. Men and women being imprisoned so that they scatter. And the goal is to snuff out the gospel but the effect is that they are scattered through Judea and Samaria, and the very purpose of Christ himself is being carried out in this context. I hope you see that truth in your own life. I think of Verses like Genesis 50 and verse 20 where, where Joseph talks to his brothers that, that what you intended for evil, God uses for good to accomplish the saving of many lives, to accomplish his purposes. Romans 8.28 would be a good place in the New Testament that God uses all things for our good, for the good of those who loved him, that we'd be conformed more to the image of Christ, that we would look more like him. Do you see that in your own life? I don't know what you're facing today, but listen to me. Just because things feel like they're going wrong, just because they're out of your control, listen, God is still in control and he's accomplishing his purposes. I I want you to feel that and to believe that because it's hard to walk by faith and not by sight in the things that we see. Oh, Lord, make this truth real in our hearts. And I want this to be true for us individually. I want it to be true for our church as well. Because as we look at our culture, I think we have to conclude that the culture is not as in favor of the church as it used to be. There's more hostility towards us. They're not going house to house and throwing us in jail But, you know, our 501c3 tax-exempt status gets threatened and and, and we begin to get concerned. And rightfully so. I believe we should be concerned. But I don't want us to be afraid. I don't want us to fear. A lot of times out of our fear we begin to do desperate things and to say desperate things. And, And to be honest with you, a lot of times our fear just drives us to be mean to people. And I don't want us to be afraid. In fact, we should have an optimism. As we look at the context in which God breaks through things, new stages, new advancements of his mission, it's oftentimes in the context of persecution. Listen, I'm not saying that it's not hard. It is. But I am telling you that persecution is a context in which the early church thrived. And if you're a student of the history of the church at all, I think you would have to say the church tends to do better in times of opposition and persecution than we deal with success. We've handled success very poorly. If you give us money, if you give us political power, we tend to become a part of the culture around us. I worry sometimes because we seem to grieve the loss of being in the majority of our culture. And that is something to grieve that loss because it's very real and it's something that's happened. But some of what we grieve is just a nostalgia for something that's not of God at all. You know, a person can love the United States of America, can respect authority, can stand for the flag, and still, when they die, go to hell for eternity. Our biggest goal, our biggest priority is to see men and women come to a saving faith of the Lord Jesus Christ and to see them enter into his mission of redeeming all things and making all things new. And the church can thrive when we're not the majority culture. So I don't want you to be afraid. I don't want you to react out of fear. I don't want you to get desperate. Because God is in control. He uses what other people mean for harm for our good to make us look more like Jesus. And he accomplishes his purposes. Perhaps what we see will be an expansion of the mission of God that it might actually thrive in the environment that we face today. Lord, please make it so. That, that's the context where we see God's mission carried out. But I want you to see also who carries out the mission of God. This is something that is new. This is something that is groundbreaking. Did you catch who's carrying out the mission now? Look in verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. All right. So those who were scattered, well, who was scattered? We'll look up in verse 1. All except the apostles were scattered through Judea and Samaria. So who's doing this work of expansion? Everybody except the apostles are in this new stage of expansion, right? You see, when they were in Jerusalem, people looked to the apostles for the preaching and the teaching and the carrying out of ministry. And these people just kind of came to under the ministry of the apostles and they were ministry consumers. They received ministry from the apostles, but now, all these people who have been sitting under apostolic teaching are going out and they're not ministry consumers. They are ministry producers. They are ministering. They are themselves carrying out the mission of God wherever it is that they go. It's what some folks call every member ministry. Everyone is sharing the good news, everyone is active in doing this. You know, I'm sure it was hard for them to leave their homes, to, to leave what was familiar to them and to go to another place. But in that process, as they went, they, they spread the good news of the gospel wherever they went. Perhaps there were natural opportunities to share. As people asked them, why are you showing up here? You live in Jerusalem. Why do you leave your home? Why do you? And they say, can I tell you the good news about Jesus? Listen, this is a huge shift in the life of the church. If you read historians, sociologists, they say this is a huge shift because up to this point in all religions, all world religions, the religion was carried out by the priests, by the clergy. If you were a member of that religion, you went to the priests, and, and yes, you brought money or you brought an animal, and there were sacrifices made, You sac- but the priest did it on your behalf. The priest went on your behalf before God or the gods. It was the clergy and the priests who carried out the work of ministry. And for the first time in the history of civilization, there's this religion where every member becomes a minister. The Holy Spirit, God himself, and the person doesn't invade a temple in Jerusalem, but the curtain is torn and the Holy Spirit of God comes into the lives of his people, giving them gifts. Why? For the building up of the church. To advance the mission, to advance the cause. Every member becomes a minister and it's revolutionary as we shift from this being consumers only to ministry Producers. I fear that sometimes because of the culture that we live in, we're used to being consumers. We're used to being customers. And we bring that mindset into the church. We don't come here like the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But we come here to be served. We seek that. We want that. And sometimes there's an expectation that the people here are going to serve us. And listen, there are things we should provide as a leadership at the church. We should educate people and teach them. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. There should be an equipping that takes place here. You should receive education. You should receive equipping here. But for what end? Not your entertainment. Not to make you feel better about yourself, but so that you go out and use what you've learned and what you've been equipped to do to carry out the mission of God wherever he's put you. We gather once a week, but then we are scattered just like these folks are to the glory of God for the advancement of his kingdom. I believe there needs to be a shift in our mindset from being ministry consumers to ministry producers. A few weeks ago, Paul Hahn was here. He preached. Remember, he was a campus minister for Lisa and me, and we were talking about, I was talking about going to seminary. Remember, he talked me out of going. And one of the things that he said was, he said, look, ministers are not on the front lines of where things are happening. He said, my job as a minister is I'm like a MASH unit. if you don't remember the TV show MASH, that's a mobile army surgical hospital, okay? And so he said, as a minister, I'm like a MASH unit. You're on the front lines of ministry as a lawyer or as a doctor or as a banker or whatever, a teacher, a coach. And then when you get beat up by the world, you come back and I patch you up, (laughs) he said, as a MASH unit. I train you, I feed you to send you back out into the fight that the front lines are where every member of the church ministers, and that ministers the occupational ministers are really behind the scenes. I think that 's a good picture, and so I begin to think about our church that way. I begin to think about what would that look like in this place, and the image I came up with is still sort of a military image is to think about, and, and I'd encourage you to think about, how do you think about the church? Do you think about this church as more like a battleship or more like a cruise ship? You, you see, a cruise ship is where people are employed to meet the individual needs and wishes of the customers or the consumers. And the goal is that the customers or the consumers would be happy, that they would be entertained, right? Right? The the battle is against boredom. And and so there's pressure to do ever more programs. We can have a social director to do things, to to make sure that we have our needs and our wishes met. But a battleship is much different, right? A battleship is on a mission. It's a part of a greater mission. And every person on a battleship has a job to do to further the mission. And the leadership on a battleship, they're not there to meet individual wishes and needs. The leadership is there to see that everything that is done on the ship, whether eating, sleeping, training, is done to prepare for the next mission, to prepare for the next battle. Now listen, do not hear what I'm not saying, okay? Do not go out of here and say, oh, I heard him say today that he wants to run the church like a battleship. Right? I'm not saying that the church is, is a military organization. That is not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that we need to operate more like a battleship than a cruise ship. I am saying that. Because I believe that's what we see in God's word, that when the mission goes forth, it's because every member is committed to the mission. One more analogy. If you don't like the military and you can't hear that, you don't like the business and the commercial kinds of things, how about sports and entertainment? What the word is saying here is that you are not part of the audience, right? That you're not in the audience, that you're not a spectator, that you're not even a fan of Jesus or of Christianity, that you are a player on the field, that you yourself compete. You come here to be educated, to be equipped, to be encouraged, to be coached. But that your job as a follower of Jesus is to get in the game and to play for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom. There are so many opportunities to get involved you heard some today with common ground shoals. I don't know if you know it, but foster parents come here once a week to be trained. That's a ministry that goes on right here in this church. There are other ministries we're involved with shoals, save life. There are people who go to restoration ranch from him. We support them uh, as well as a church. As it begins to turn colder, we used to do room at the inn here where folks could come and spend the night when it's so cold outside. But we didn't do that last year because we didn't have the people to run the program. Meanwhile, our city has advanced. Not only is there room at the inn now, but now there's room at the table where there's a meal served in our community every night at 5.30 p.m. at First Presbyterian Church downtown in Florence. Now listen... (laughs) I don't agree with everything that they believe. But man, I'm glad they're in this community. And I'm glad that they're doing what they're doing. Oh, that people would say that about Redeemer Church as well. That's who is called upon to carry out the mission of God. It's a new shift in philosophy and in thinking in the history of the world. But let me talk about a third thing. What did they do to carry out the mission? What did it look like, right? What, sketch me a little on the back of a napkin sketch. What, what would it look like to carry out God's mission outside of Jerusalem? What did it look like? Well, they seem to focus on three things. The word, good deeds in the community, and then community, their community themselves, community as a church. Let's look at those. First, they're very focused on the word. You see that, don't you? Verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Verse 5, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed Christ. Verse 12, but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom and the name of Jesus, they were baptized both men and women. Verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God. Verse 25, when they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel. Next week, we'll look at Philip and the Ethiopian. And in verse 35, we're told that he told him the good news of the gospel. The church is to be focused on the word of God. There is a content to be embraced There is a truth to be lived out. There is something to be believed. And that shouldn't be a shock to us, right? Matthew 28, the resurrected Christ, when he's given that great mission statement for the church, he says, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Of course, there's a content, right? We saw it in Acts 2.42 that after the Holy Spirit blew in at Pentecost, what did the church do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Listen, it is true that Christianity consists of more than just believing the truth, but Christianity is certainly not less than that. There is a foundational truth to be believed Content to be embraced that is the basis for all that we say and that we do. Second, I see good deeds in the text. Look at them there in verses 6 through 8. When the crowds heard Philip, because he's proclaiming Christ, and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid attention to what he said with shrieks. Evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed, so there was great joy in that city. You see what's going on here? Do you see the good deeds? Philip did things to relieve spiritual and physical suffering in a way that brought joy to that city. Not just the converts did he heal. Not just the converts were rejoicing, but the whole city rejoiced because of the good things that were going on in that city. Now, you look at this and say, okay, well, those are miracles, right? We can't do miracles, Well, yes, God did do some amazing things through Philip because this was a unique, groundbreaking situation. And to authenticate his message, God did some amazing things through him. And I cannot promise a repeat performance of those things. But listen, the principle remains true we still, what mission looks like in the world is to relieve the spiritual and physical suffering in a way that brings joy, in our case, to the shoals. And listen, I'm going to go further. Sometimes that includes miraculous things that happen. I don't want to close the door to that. Somebody recently told me that they were talking to another church about us and what we believe. They They said, you don't believe in Holy Spirit. You don't believe in miracles that he does miraculous things still. I was like, what? Who told you that? So I want you to hear what our church believes. This is from that pastoral letter that we wrote, the second or third general assembly. And we talk about miracles. And so this is what our position is as a church. We, we say this, that scripture also uses the term miracle or wonder to describe the acts of God in all areas of creation and providence. The power of God in response to believing prayer to work wonders and to heal the sick cannot be limited. Such wonders certainly do continue to this day and are all for the glory of God and not man. Amen. That is right. So while I can't promise a repeat performance, I wouldn't rule it out. I don't know what Holy Spirit may do if we begin to pour ourselves out in the community. And the principle still remains true. Whether we do miraculous things or not, we're called to relieve spiritual and physical suffering in a way that would bring joy to our city, even amongst people who are not converts. Now, I want you to notice the balance in this. Right, it's spiritual and physical. It's both and. It's spiritual. He's casting out demons, and I think it's important to say, you know, sometimes we see, and as a church, we'll say, "Well, I want to deal with spiritual things because I see spiritually." Notice he also healed sickness, physical healing. You see, sometimes as a church, we only want to deal with spiritual things and not with physical things. And you can't draw that line when it comes to the mission of our God, who is making all things new, who's redeeming all of creation as far as the curse is found. So we are interested in spiritual and physical healing in all of its forms. And listen, whenever God gives somebody spiritual deliverance, that is a miracle. Because only the Spirit of God can change a person's heart. And when God brings physical healing to somebody, that's a miracle too. Only the God who created all things can make all things new. And what instruments he uses, that is his concern. But it is a work of God, and it continues to this day. And we must seek to be involved in good deeds in our community. Why? Why does it say, do you see what happens Look what it says in verse 6. Now that you've got the miracles things out of your mind, or maybe you're mad at me, I don't know. But look what it said in verse 6. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. Listen, if we just convey content, if we only convey truth, there are very few people who care about hearing that. There's a lot of information available out there, right? Maybe you've heard the old saying before, that people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And right here in Acts 8 and verse 6, we see that the message, that the content, that the truth, that is the bedrock of Christianity expands as people see us doing good deeds, spiritual and physical, to people who are not a part of the church, so that there's joy in the entire community where we find ourselves, not just among converts. So that people would say about us, I don't believe everything they believe, but man, I'm glad that they're here. Because they make this city, they make the shoals a better place. There's a third thing I see here. Oh man, this one's huge. There's word ministry, there's deep ministry, but look at the community that takes place here. Let me, let me tell you what takes. There's the inclusion of very different people in one community. Jews and Samaritans. They hated each other in a dispute going back thousands of years. And here we have Philip, a Jew, going to the Samaritans who were hated and sharing the good news of Jesus with them. Here we have Philip going and touching them, putting his hands on them to heal them, to cast out demons, to free them from spiritual and physical suffering. We have Peter and John, (laughs) John of all people, Go back and read it. Luke, John's the one who got mad at a Samaritan village and said to Jesus, Hey, do you want us to call down fire and just consume them all? We'll do that. And here's John coming later, filled with the Holy Spirit, touching Samaritans, looking to see them get saved, looking to see them be filled with the Holy Spirit, inclusion of very different people in one community. I started to tell you I was sad about this, but as I thought about it more, I think I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to see this is a good thing and I'm happy about it. But I just want you to know, there are people who come to me and they say, I'm not really sure Redeemer Church is the place for me, because there are a lot of people here who believe things that I don't believe. And sometimes it's something spiritual, like their view on the Holy Spirit is different than my view on the Holy Spirit. Their view on predestination is different than my Their view of the end times is different than my view of the end times. Their view on the role of women in the church is different than my role. Sometimes it's something spiritual. Sometimes it's political. I have people come to me and say, everybody in my community group seems to be of this political party, and I'm not in that political party. I, I'm not sure Redeemer's the place for me. Sometimes, and this might be hard for you to believe, but it shouldn't be. Sometimes people, I follow up, hey, we weren't at church on Sunday. It's because my college football team lost on Sunday. And I'll get kidded by the people who are fans of another team. Oh, my. Sometimes I get sad and I get down about it. But I'm beginning to see that that's a good thing. In the early days of this church, everybody was the same. They chose to educate their kids the same. They believed the same thing about everything. That's not the church. That's a cult. Listen, the church has never been a place where everybody believed the same thing about everything. Ever. The 12 disciples Jesus called together had vast differences about what the government should or should not be. Go back and listen to the sermon in Mark in the spring, right? Even amongst the 12 disciples, And here there are Jewish people and Samaritan people coming together. The Jewish people thought these people were half-breeds. They disagreed about where you should worship. They disagreed about whether there was any more scripture after the Pentateuch. There are a lot of spiritual things that they disagreed about. But listen, one of the biggest things about this story that we miss because we don't know the context is the importance not just of sharing the gospel that we've talked about, the importance of the acceptance of the gospel of the Samaritans, which is really important. But one of the biggest things is the acceptance of the Samaritans by the church in Jerusalem. That is huge. That people who are very different, who have different ideas about how to live life, would come together in one group, would all be followers of Jesus. They didn't agree with each other on everything, but they agreed on the most important things. That's what the church is. Look at the skepticism in verses 14 to 17. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, oh no, not the dreaded Samaritans, how could they become Christians, right? When they heard they had accepted, well, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Whoa, what's going on there? I'm not sure that fits with my theology of what the Spirit does. (laughs) We just talked about that a second ago, right? (laughs) It's a tough passage, right? Uh, Howard Marshall, one of my favorite commentators, says right here on verse 15, this is perhaps the most extraordinary statement in the book of Acts, that these people believed and were baptized, but they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. <laughs> What's going on there? That doesn't fit my theological category. That doesn't fit my box, right? Listen, usually the Holy Spirit comes at the time of Conversion. Acts chapter two, verse 38. What does Peter say? When the people are cut to the heart? He tells them, "Repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll receive the forgivenesses, and you'll get the gift, which is the promised Holy Spirit. And it's not just for you, it's for your children and for all those who are fall off, everybody God who will call, right, who, who repents and believes and is baptized will receive the Holy Spirit. It's what we've learned so far in Acts. I think of if you look at the story after this, when Peter goes to Cornelius' house, Peter's just preaching, and the Holy Spirit falls before it even says that they believe and are baptized. That's Acts 10, look down around verse 44. So the Holy Spirit does different things at different times. It's almost like he just blows wherever he wills, like he does what he wants to do. <laughs> he's not confined in spiritual care. I think Jesus said that in John 3, right, to Nicodemus. Typically, the Spirit comes first, right? I think of Romans 8 and verse 9 where Paul says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Usually the Holy Spirit. These people believe and are baptized, but they haven't received the Holy Spirit yet. What's going on there? Listen to me these new converts that are very different than the people in Jerusalem, these different people being accepted by the church is so important to God that he withholds the Holy Spirit from them until the Jerusalem church can be there to see it happen so that these Samaritans are accepted as brothers. That's how important community is to God. Not that we all believe the same thing, but that if we believe the most important things, that we accept one another. (laughs) It's more than that, isn't it? That we tolerate one another. No, it's more than that. That we love one another. That we serve one another. Their common faith in Jesus overcame centuries of hostility between Jews and Samaritans. And listen, that can happen today. If our community began to look at this place and they saw white people and black people and Asian people and Hispanic people all together, people say, hmm, something is going on there. Because that just doesn't just happen automatically, right? If people see rich folks and poor people with different socioeconomic groups, Democrats and Republicans, Alabama fans and Auburn fans, all together, they begin to ask questions. They begin to get curious. What if next week for Trunk or Tree, just imagine, that we all gather here, we invite our friends, there are all different kinds of people here, that every member is seeing ourselves as a minister, that we're loving one another and serving one different kinds of people are all here, gather people who don't agree with you politically or who cheer for a different college team. And we take pictures and we post them online. Imagine somebody whose their community is an online community, which, by the way, is no real community at all, right? And they're online looking at community because they're longing for community. And they see online pictures of this community where they're very different people who come together in one community that love one another, that serve one another, that love one another's children, that serve one another's children. People begin to ask questions. What's going on there? How do they do that? How do different people come together and not just be tolerance, but it's love for one another. It's serving one another. How does that happen? It's the fourth question here, right? What's the power for carrying out God's mission? How does it happen? Where do we get the power to do that? As Jeremy prayed, some of these people I don't even like. I don't want to serve them and be around them. How does that happen? Look at verses 18 to 21. Simon the magician has made a profession of faith and been baptized. And now he sees Peter and John laying hands on people and they're getting the Holy Spirit. And this is what happens. Verse 18, when Simon, that's Simon the magician, not Simon Peter, when Simon the magician saw the spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered him, may your money perish with you. Now you need to understand. That's a nice translation, okay? The scripture is being nice right The NIV is being nice. May your money perish with you. Do you know what Peter says? Do you know what Peter looks at him and says? To hell with you and your money. I asked Jeremy Terry if I could say. It. I said, can I say to hell with you and your money in a sermon? He says, if it's what God says it's worth, then you better say it, right? That's harsh. To hell with you and your money. What does he say? Because you thought you could buy, what? The gift of God with money. Look at verse 21. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right with God. Listen to me. You can be a professing believer who's been baptized, and if your heart is not right with God, then you have no part in the ministry. Think of the assumption behind that. The assumption is every member is involved in ministry. That was point number two, right? But when our hearts are not right with God, we're taken out of the game. We're taken out of the mission. We're taken off the field. And what is it that we have to get back to? What is the empowerment? He says, it's because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. What is the gift of God? It's the Holy Spirit. Amen. Acts 1 and verse 4, Jesus said, Listen, I got this mission for you, but wait. Wait in Jerusalem. There's a whole point in that first sermon on wait, right? Wait in Jerusalem until what? Until you receive the gift that was promised by my Father. You were baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized by the Spirit. Acts 1 and verse 4. Peter, we've already said in Acts 2 and verse 38, says, says what? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, and you'll receive the gift, the promised Holy Spirit, right? Luke 11, earlier Jesus has said, look, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will the Father who knows how to give you you the Spirit to those who ask? The gift is the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin, and conviction is a gift, even though it feels yucky. It means that I can see what I'm doing wrong, and I can turn from those things. It's the Holy Spirit who grants us faith. That's a gift from God, Ephesians 2, 8. Right. It's the Holy Spirit who leads us to repentance. That is a gift of God. We're going to see later that God granted repentance even to the Gentiles. And in Acts 10, our salvation, which comes by the Holy Spirit, comes from the Spirit applying the finished work of Christ on the cross. That is a gift from God. And it can't be bought. And it can't be earned. You see, we don't get our wisdom and our righteousness and our holiness together and then give that to God so he will save us. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that Jesus is our wisdom, that Jesus is our righteousness, that Jesus is our holiness, that Jesus is all those things for us. And that's why in verse 5, Philip proclaims what? Christ. Because he's all those things for us. Listen, when we think we can earn our salvation, and we think we're doing a pretty good job, that's when we get prideful. That's what leads to the superiority that we think we have over other people. But when we see that salvation is the gift of God, given by his grace alone, that even the faith I have is a gift from God, that this is all of God, that he's the author and perfecter of our faith then we can begin to have a confident humility. We can have a confident humility that God uses what others mean for evil, for our good, and for the advancement of his kingdom. It means we can have a confident humility that God uses us, broken and messed up people, to carry out his mission. It means we can have a confident humility that as we focus on the word, And as we reach out, doing good deeds, pushing back the effects of the fall, both spiritually and physically. And as we value a community, not where we all believe the same things, but where we all believe the same thing about the most important thing. And we begin to have a love for one another despite our differences. And we see his kingdom advance. May God do that in this place. Show us that everything that we have is a gift from him. Take away our pride. Grow love in us, which comes by his spirit. Oh, Lord, please do it. Let's pray and ask him. Heavenly Father, only you can do this. There is no leadership team good enough to pull it off. There's no group of people who are smart enough and capable enough. Only you, working by your spirit, can do this work in this place. And we as your people, I just pray that you, would, that you would empty us of ourselves and that you would fill us by your spirit so that we would be a people who are on a mission, on your mission. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I pray to stand and sing, I surrender all.